Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, on this week's episode, we go back and we revisit some past episodes where some of our guests gave us some life-changing advice. When I first heard this, it moved me. When I heard it again, it impacted me even more. Now, some other information for everyone out there. We're redoing a lot. We're redoing some of the brand and the website and that for the podcast. And we're going to have some big announcements moving forward in this coming month. So stay tuned. But right now, let's start the episode. All right. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. And then while this was going on, while you're building this company, your kids were also growing up. Can you share some advice on your experience with raising a family at the exact same time as growing this company? Well, I think a lot of people do a really good job of managing that. I am not a person who is an expert on a balanced lifestyle. But here's the number one answer to that. And I'm surprised that I'm saying this, but it's uh, really true. My kids knew how much, how important it was for me to do business in the right way is at least what I thought was the right way. I also did a lot of charity work, putting disadvantaged kids through college. And my kids, they loved the fact that I loved this so much. And when they were littler, I would never miss dinner. I mean, I would travel and obviously I wouldn't be home then. I'd travel maybe one or two days a week when they were littler. I would always, I would never come to work or stay over at work during dinner time. So I always have dinner with my kids when I was not traveling. Just naturally wanted to do things with them and did. We took a lot of trips together. So I did did what felt natural to me. And I knew that I was making a choice of what to do. And it was more important for me to spend time with my kids. And after all these years, my oldest child is 50 years old now. My youngest is 30. So they've all grown up. They have been very kind to me uh, that I was a a pretty good father. So that makes me feel really good. So with that, many parents shelter their kids from business and business activities. How much knowledge or engagement would you recommend a parent encourage their children to have? How much of your business did they know about growing up? Well, they knew a lot about it because uh, I was in business from the age of 26 on. So they knew about the business. It was, you know, my family and my business that that was my life. And as my kids got older, and it was my business and my charity. I lead a pretty intense life, I think, uh, to this day. And I feel very fortunate to be in good enough health to, to, to do that. My oldest child, Corey, both worked for the company. At one point, we had five employees. They were two of them. I was. <laughs> One of them and my wife was another one and uh, one salesperson in North Carolina. That was the company for a while. My son, my next oldest child, he never really wanted to work in the business. He was a very dynamic uh, superstar member of his fraternity. To this day, he, his fraternity friends are like a second family to him and he didn't want to be in the business world. He told me that I don't want to have to work as hard as you do. 
And then my other kids really haven't wanted to work in the business, but they know all about the business because we talk about it all the time. And that, when we got uh, to the point where we were pretty successful, I set up trust funds you know, for them. And now they have the burden of being a trust fund baby, which is a real issue, by the way, for, the, for these kids. I hope that answers that question. Trust fund children. Just wondering, was there any worries that you had when newfound wealth suddenly appeared after you sold your company? Was there any concerns about that, how people might change? There were, and that's a really good question. Let me say this. In 2001, I sold half of the company to some investors for $40 million. When I did that, I set up funds for my kids and said, I think you're going to have a lot of money with the success of this company, but dad is not giving you, I'm going to put you through college and here's money that's going in your trust fund in the form of shares of the company. And if we're successful, you're not going to ever see another penny from dear old dad because I'm going to give it all to the Give Back Foundation, which is the foundation I set up. And we're going to put as many disadvantaged kids through college as possible. And that's what we did. One thing that I did right was for each one of my kids, they were not able to draw down any money out of their trust fund until they turned 35 years old. When they were 35, they could take one third of the money out and spend it however they wanted. 25, they got the first third. At 35, they got the next third and they got the rest of it at age 50. That was worked out perfectly. All six of my kids been great uh, stewards of their money, have, have not thrown it away or you know, they've used it very, very well because they know their dad sold his company for $4.3 billion. They're approached by people who want to be their friends and that, and I think they've handled it you know, very, very well. I got to ask then, you're 70, you're well off. You can just retire on the beach and sip lemonade for the rest of your days. But instead, you decide to start another company. Why? I started this scholarship program back in 2003 to pay back a scholarship that I had received when I graduated from high school. Scholarship for $250 from the local women's club. My picture was on the front page of the Joliet Herald News. I had no idea why I was chosen. I didn't apply for anything, but it just made me feel really good. I got a plaque and all this. And when I went off to college, I'm like, you know, I'm going to pay that money back to them someday. And so it took a long time. But when I sold the half of the company for $40 million, I sent them a check for $5,000. And I said, I know it's been a long time, but I just wanted to give you this money back to give you this money with interest to help other kids in the future. And it was, I was done with it. A few weeks later, I get this note card from this woman who says, Bob, you don't remember me. I'm Mrs. Latour. And you were the crossing guard for my three daughters in sixth grade at Ludwig School. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. And she said, you're the first person in 53 years that's ever given us money back, scholarship recipients. And we would love for you to come to our annual meeting and talk to us. So I went to the annual meeting and I had just sold, like I said, I had that big lot of, a lot of money. They told me that it was their 100th anniversary. And I'm like, you're kidding. 
said, let's, I'll tell you what, let me make that 5,000, a hundred thousand and let's pick five kids and help them get through college. And so that's what happened. And we worked with the local high school where I went to high school and we did that. And every year it worked so well. The first year we did it again. At this point, we have 1,350 kids either in college, graduated from college or in high school on their way to college. As we've gotten bigger and bigger in the scholarship program and seen the impact, it's amazing the impact that we've made on these families, not just these kids, but their families. And I figured out a way that we could, we have 30 university partners and we've been able to put kids through college with $20,000 per kid, four years of college. And we do that by taking kids who are very disadvantaged, foster children, children of incarcerated parents, homeless kids. These kids are all eligible for Pell Grants and state grants. So we've worked with universities to take those grants plus our money and put these kids through college. If you can put a kid through college for $20,000 or go drink martinis, I, I'm just going to help these kids because I, it's better for me. I love doing it. It's so much appreciated and we're doing good stuff. And the people in the company, I started a company. Why? So we could get make more and more $20,000, put more and more kids through college. And I think we have a program as we keep making it better and better and helping more and more disadvantaged kids, we're going to be able to put tens of thousands of kids through college with this new company. I mean, just think about that. So that's why it's a pretty easy answer for me. By the way, I, I don't like martinis, but I, I do like Bahama Mamas and I do go on vacations. <laughs> and with that, how should one think about life, what they do? I believe you go back to the core principle. To me, in all of life, what's the single most important decision you have to make? And this is my way I look at it. You know, at the age of 13, when I was going through confirmation, our, the minister at the congregational church was very clear. He says, are you going to devote your life to what the Bible says or are, are you not? And if you're going to, then you need to do it honestly and completely and follow the rules of the Bible. and. When I went off to college, I realized, you know, I didn't believe in an afterlife. And therefore, I'm not going to spend all my time trying to live the way the Bible says. I believe in the principles and all that. Everlasting life. But being a math guy, everlasting is a long time. <laughs> so if you're going to have everlasting life, why wouldn't that be the best thing possible for you, for everybody to really have? I just got, came to the point where I didn't believe in it. And what's the next thing? And in ethics class, philosophy 102 at the University of Illinois, I formed the opinion at that time that doing the most good for the most people is the highest priority. That's John Stuart Mill, his way of saying it. Transcendentalism, I think is the name of it. Do the most good you can for the most people. Carlos Castaneda was another person. Take care of yourself. And then if you have extra leftover, take care of your family. And then if you have extra leftover, take care of your extended family and then wider and wider. Help as many people as you can in the best possible way. And it's really simple. I can't think of a better thing to do than to take an underprivileged kid 
and help them get through college. That's to me the best value I can do with my resources and my time. And so that's the way I look at life. Every person in this world is better off than a lot of other people. And you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be handling billions of dollars. All of us can do more to help people who, who need our help and some of our talents. All these companies that you started, I mean, you had success after success after success. What questions were you asking yourself or what brainstorming did you do before finally jumping in and starting them? Most people have an idea, I believe. Also, when I talk to startups, and then they kind of rush into making this a reality. We had in the first company, for instance, Computer 2000, we had about four months meetings. We call this EAF meetings or something like this action standing on your own feet. One of my partners said, you know, the idea is, I mean, substantial, but if we don't make it perfect and we are all trained to not go for perfect, but for 80-20 rule. But he said, we need to break this rule and we need to make it perfect. And so we called it the DeBear process, you know, DeBear's, the, 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 the diamond guys, you know, polishing the idea until it's really perfect. Nobody can crack it. And so that's what we did. And it worked well. And I simply kept to this metaphor of polishing to perfection before you actually go. I think it was my third company. And I always had sort of not doubts per se, but respect for what may come. Well, I always worked on it to the point where I said, okay, if I cannot come up with a problem that is unsolvable going forward and will break the company, then I should not start. And But if I have a situation where I cannot even imagine that this is not working, well, then go for it. And, and that's what I did. I mean, I had tons of ideas, but many were kind of weak or not really well thought out or, and it didn't, didn't resonate enough for me to say, yeah, this is what I want to do. For instance, the counter to it is a company I'm, we're just starting. I mean, my wife and myself. And when I thought through the things, I mean, I'm now, you know, much older and I couldn't come up with a single reason why this is not flying. And I thought, okay, this is one of those again. <laughs> we give it a shot. And I mean, basically one year into it, from the first idea, uh, let alone from, you know, doing first things, totally excited. <laughs> now, of these companies that you started, from my understanding, three out of four of them, you co-founded them with your wife. And yeah. I mean, I've talked to many venture capitalists that maybe not publicly, but at least over drinks or dinner will say, you know, they don't want to invest in husband and wife or partner companies, but you broke the norm. Can you tell us about that? It was breaking the norm. And it, it, funny enough, it's even breaking my own norm. I would be very, very cautious <laughs> investing in a, in a husband and wife kind of startup because usually, or not usually, but oftentimes it's just not working. I mean, there's, there, there's too much conflicts and potential for conflicts and so on. But in our particular case, I mean, we came both from an entrepreneurial family. We both know that if there is time, we do the craziest things in the world. And if not, then we simply don't. We work our butt off, you know, whatever it takes. Uh, we had sort of the same experience in that regard. We're also the same type of people where we don't have the, the leadership ego like, oh, no, 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 it's my company. No, it's, I mean, without me, you could never do that. I mean, 
All this kind of stuff never happened. And uh, so we know it's working. On the pro side, I mean, we're working like 12 hours, 14 hours a day, every day. Uh, we're 14 hours together. There, there's never the moment, are you coming home? Dinner is ready. <laughs> you know, the kids are waiting. I mean, all these things. And this makes a huge difference. So if the couple is good, I mean, if it's a real good relationship, I think it will work. And if not, it will break. I mean, and so we said, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. Works brilliantly. I, I would not even consider doing it without her because there's so many things that I couldn't do alone. I mean, you have a sparring partner who goes deeper in your mind than you yourself and stuff like that. So, so that's a good thing. Could I actually ask a little bit deeper that how does that, how is the work dynamics when the company is very small? When the bosses are together, how does that dynamic look for the company as a whole, starting off and as it grows? I mean, employees like, okay, <laughs> is this really good? And you know, who is it, the real boss? The question that you try to navigate pretty quickly. It's interesting. I mean, and, and this is something we experience, I have to say, over almost all the companies. After a while, Either they never realized that we were together, but in, in those cases where they did, they realized, okay, everybody, every of these two guys have a very particular strength and very particular weaknesses, and they seem to augment this of each other. And when additional co-founders come to play, which always happened as well, kind of similar, but they realized very quickly, no, this is actually a well-done couple. And, you know, we don't argue with each other. I mean, we... We discuss things. I mean, everybody has their opinion, but it's not like, ah, <laughs> it works after a while. So I think there is a certain moment in the beginning where it might be a little bit weird for new employees. But once they get over it or once they heard, it's actually cool. No problem at all. And now after all these companies, you're really excited about how the human mind works and how ideation and learning is done. What triggered you to even think about it? And what have you discovered in your research thus far? Trigger was really some of my, 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 these people who asked me, how, how did you come up with these ideas? And I had no answer. I mean, I had the generic answer. You know, you need to be open-minded. You need to think out of the box, grab the stars. And I mean, all these things that we hear more or less every day and every time. The thing is that when somebody wants sort of a recipe so what do I do physically to do this or that? And then I realized, so if somebody says, how do you hold a very thin glass? I could explain, grab it, but be very careful that you don't break it. You sense it with your fingers. And so I could explain even a difficult process, but I cannot or nobody could or cannot explain in your neurons up there. You know, you tell some of your neurons, you know, you look in the further backside of your brain <laughs> into these cells, and maybe they can find something. It is very difficult because the brain, obviously, is the only organ and the only mechanic that we have that we're not controlling like anything else. We can control every muscle. I mean, I learned from my son, a single muscle can be trained, which I thought this is crazy in itself. With the brain, this is more difficult. I started to learn about neuroscience and how one branch of the neuroscience is actually working on thinking and learning 
And not so much about ideation, but I learned then later on that ideation learning is almost the same process in our brain. For me, it was just, I mean, a fully, completely new, fascinating world. I mean, it's like, you know, people who never were diving or never skydiving or never in the universe, so to speak. I mean, flying to the moon. I mean, these experiences for me was like having the experience with my own mind or learning how this works. A couple of discoveries was number one, which was, I think, fascinating. And I argued for a while that humans are not actually literally creative. We're composing ideas from past experiences. So if you see a particular animal, let's say a tiger, a frog, you can imagine taking the frog legs to the tiger and you have a tiger with frog legs. So that's the degree of composition. But if you take something else that you have never seen or never experienced, you cannot assemble it because our mind cannot comprehend the unknown. And that is the best proof that our mind is actually not able to create anything, but compose almost everything possible. And so if we think about composition of our past experiences, the interesting thing was, and this was for, mo for me actually the most stunning discovery, if we have all the ideas that we have based on previous experiences, and there's nothing and absolutely nothing coming in randomly or divine or, or anywhere, then the saying, if you can think it, you can make it is absolutely real. And there is 100% real proof because everything we think, we compose from past experiences. And so if we have past experiences about whatever, they were real. And if you put two real things together, it might be something else, but it's possible to do that. If we think we could do XYZ and ABC, and if we could become a manager or if we could become an entrepreneur, or a musician, or you know, whatever it is, it is actually possible because our mind would not be able to compose the idea if it's not something that, that is actually realistic. I realized that if you can think it, you can make it. It's actually no longer just a motivational sentence, you know, give it to me. <laughs> but it is something possible because the way our neurons and our whole brain is structured. And so this drove me. Obviously, to the max, I have to say, now I wanted to find out what stimulates these neurons to have these compositions. When do they have it? How do they have it? What actually communicates in your mind to make this all work out? We learned, for instance, I mean, almost all of us, that we have a right brain half and a left brain half. One is the creative part and one is the logical part. And then the question for me was, okay, but how does this communicate? And, you know, there's a mechanism in our brain. It's called corpus callosum. These are 200 million neurons that, or fibers or axons that connect one brain half with the other. And that is sort of the negotiation path for experiences that allows us to create an idea. Another thing is interesting that the brain is our most energy-consuming organ. I mean, it's, there's nothing more energy-consuming than the brain. No muscle, no muscle construct, nothing. <laughs> so what, what it does to protect itself to, from overheating or overly getting overly excited, <laughs> boom, explode, it actually shuts down uh, the process when it's too much. And that means, you know, you cannot sit 
eight hours brainstorming. I mean, you, you get fully exhausted. You probably fell asleep after five hours or four hours. You can't even keep yourself awake. And the brain stops certain activities when it's too much of associations and findings and search and so on. If you're studying things and learning heavily, you know, the word my brain explodes is very, very real. I mean, it, it seems to be exploding and you get simply super tired. I mean, you cannot blow the fuse, so to speak, but uh, <laughs> because they're inside. I mean, now for entrepreneurs, now we know that there is actually a way to come to deeper ideas. And so one of the things we found was that the, the classic brainstorming, where we sit together, a team, usually no longer than an hour, and we come up with our ideas and everybody else comes up with ideas. About 50% of who's in this room or meeting actually create new ideas based on the inspiration of others. But since the brain has not the capacity to go very deep immediately, because the brain is trained for the last, what is it, two and a half billion years every day, and it's alert, sees danger, reacts immediately, and reacts to the most obvious solution. And this is what it does still today. It looks for the most obvious solution, and that's what it does in a brainstorm meeting. So therefore, the brainstorm meeting cannot come up with groundbreaking ideas, fundamentally different. It comes up with the most obvious answers. Many of them are new for all the participants. And so everybody gets gung-ho and excited and say, hey, yeah, this was a great meeting, all these great ideas. I think this is wonderful, but it's not innovative and definitely not disruptive. So what the brain needs is time. And there's another interesting discovery. And we checked this when the teams come and we ask, so how many did come to new ideas one or two days after the brainstorm meeting was over? Every group said, oh, yeah, there's, there's always a couple. And I said, yeah. Come on. I mean, if, if we would listen to all these, I mean, we would never be finished. We would never be done. No new idea. So we have selected the idea and go with it. Now, the sad part is these new ideas become because the brain continues to work on the question. And so it gets actually deeper. So these new ideas would actually be more valuable than the previous ones. Now, startups, without knowing this, including myself, I mean, we were listening to all these other things. Ah, maybe this is something to polish. And we're back to the DeBero paradigm. We polish it. It even takes six months or three months or two months to polish it to the perfection. And if you don't do that, your idea will never be really, I mean, mind-boggling. It will be still a standard idea. If we now we realize that the brain has another functionality, it's called analogous modeling or analogous thinking. So it looks for analogies, similar things, but from very different areas. We learned this actually in the 1900s around when we began to look how animals fly. And then we we, we thought, okay, if the birds fly that way, maybe we should build the wings of, of the airplanes like that. And so we do this more and more often. And we know this is very powerful. But interestingly enough, we, we look for the nature. Ah, this was a good pattern. So we all look for nature. But what we did not do uh, till today, I mean, now we do, is we look not only in nature, but actually other ideas and put analogous ideas together. And this allows the brain to go even deeper. Obviously, it needs more and more ideas, you know, fruit for thought before. 
And then there's a third element we call a color burst. This is the actually the typical sort of Silicon Valley behavior. What would be ideal? Think about there's no not there's all the money you can take. You have all the resources you want. What would you do with it? And that stimulates if the brain is already super active on a topic, it comes up with crazy ideas beyond the normal because we're all trained to not be a dreamer. Come on, be real. You're a man. You're adult now. You know, stop playing. I mean, every day we heard this until we are truly adults and no more dreamers and got real. And so we need to break this a little bit. And we call this column burst because this is the ultimate negotiation on the corpus callosum between the two brain halves. And even if the idea is almost perfect, now we want to drive it to the basically to the infinite maximum. That discovery basically was for us, I can only tell you, this was a major breakthrough in even in our own mind. I mean, we thought, gosh, I mean, you know, we did some of these, but what could we have done even more in our previous businesses if we had known every every of these aspects? So yeah, long answer, sorry, but this it, it, it was too fascinating for me to <laughs> to not share it. Now speaking of problems that founders might run into. To that first question, we talked about your five companies that three were successful and two weren't that had problems. We never really dived into those two that weren't successful. Can we circle back and can you go into a little bit more detail about the problems that as a founder or the team might have come across in those startups and what you learned from it? I think one key lesson was from startup number two. We had a technology platform that allowed two enterprise applications to integrate very easily. It was an early version of what Zapier does today. We were based on web services technology and UDDI. It was the rage of the day back in the 2000 timeframe. But for whatever reason, we had chosen not to highlight that. In fact, we downplayed that because I think some of the logic was we didn't want Microsoft to crush us because that's what they were doing. So we went and took this under the radar marketing approach and it ended up not working out. There was some problems where when we saw one of our competitors make some of the same decisions, we went and said, hey, they're doing that. We must be on the right path. Problem was both of us were lost. Okay. So they shut down and we ended up shutting down. And the sad thing was, is this great technology. One of the larger companies in the space, BEA, acquired our competitor, a company named Crossgain, for $30 million. Unfortunately, Crossgain had no shipping product, no customers, and a lawsuit pending with Microsoft because they had tons of Microsoft employees. BEA was local here in the Bay Area and Crossgain was in Seattle. So they also had a distance issue in integrating the companies. We were local. We had a shipping product. We had revenue. We had no lawsuit and we were right down the street. But since we didn't really highlight that we were in this space, this company didn't think of us as potential acquisition candidates. So we made a mistake in the marketing approach. I think in addition, I would say experience matters. There was one startup that had four Harvard grads, including three that were Harvard MBAs, one MIT grad, two Stanford folks, but almost everybody, including myself, was early in career. These were folks who, with a little time and a little seasoning, would be phenomenal contributors, and many of them have become that. Many have gone on to be VPs at name brand startups. That was only my second time as a VP. I thought I knew what I was doing, but now looking back, I was like, I didn't, I still had a lot to learn. 
So the experience matters because the talent that you have encapsulate that experience. The talent, again, matters. And we had, there were a number of startups, not just this one, that had some talent problems. There was one startup where we had a techie who, I go back, there's a couple of situations. One was a techie, one was a sales guy, and one was a sales executive. For the situation with the techie, he was charged with running the database and he was still learning his trade and he just wasn't a good fit. HR was very hesitant to part ways because there's the attorney said, hey, there's tons of risk. Well, we built a case that says, hey, this is not a good fit. It was very objective. It wasn't personal. We weren't mean to the guy. We let the guy down gently, gave him a package, took care of him, made sure he had healthcare coverage for his family, and we parted ways. That was the right thing to do because the, he just wasn't a good fit. There's another situation where we had a sales guy who wasn't passing muster. When we let him go, our sales went up, even though we were down one player. So because everybody was taking time to help this guy out, they weren't doing their own jobs. And there was another situation where we had a sales executive that wasn't a good fit. He had some good talent, but not in a startup space because he didn't have startup skills. He had big company skills. The senior team was afraid of letting him go because we were in the middle of fundraising. They thought it would look bad if we lost a VP level person while we're fundraising. I challenged that notion because yes, we lost a guy, but and if anybody of the investors ask, you say, well, we had a person who wasn't a good fit and we made the super difficult decision to amicably part ways. Being a CEO is all about being willing to make the hard decisions in life, not run from them. Yes, there would have been some eyebrows raised. Some of the investors say, hey, what happened? The clear and truthful explanation was he wasn't a good fit. We decided to amicably part ways. He was the highest paid person in the company. All right. So that was a drain on resources as well. But when you realize, okay, this isn't good, I'm going to clean up my own mess. Okay. Those are the hard decisions that comes into play because ultimately these people who are playing their roles, their judgment matters. I can't tell you how many times key decisions were made in various startups or consulting projects that ended up crippling the company. If you make enough crippling decisions, the company will die. If you make enough good decisions, the company has a strong chance of success. And those decisions are made by the people and the judgment that these people have. That's really interesting. I mean, because thinking about the funnel and that when I've talked to people in the past, they go, okay, let's break down the demographics of this person. What's their favorite hobby? What's their book? How long they spend on social media, their age, all this stuff. They don't really say, okay, who have you connected with in the past that has a network that you can reach out to and maybe invite all of them out for dinner or online painting through Zoom? A shout out yeah. to Michael at Insperity who invited me and that was a lot of fun and we all bonded and I'm going to feel like yes. I owe that guy forever. On air today, the day we're speaking, I was participating in a summit I was telling you about. The host was talking to someone named Heather Moyes, who in Canada is a well, she's a world-class athlete. She's won two gold medals. I mean, she's just an amazing public speaker. Because I'd been participating in a summit, I wasn't on air at that moment. But the other host noticed, I commented, basically. Heather said something about just ignore the naysayers. So Tim being Tim goes into Facebook and comments, screw the naysayers, because that's my brand, eh? And then Corey, the co-host, comes on and he says, Heather, I want to tell you that I just got a comment here. It said, screw the naysayers. 
You used the word naysayers three times. I don't have to look at who it is because I know it's Tim Allison and you've got to go on his, his show. I would have a very hard time getting straight to somebody like that. She's in huge demand and charges really big fees. But there she is on air saying, Tim, hit me up. I can't wait. And it happens because of the things you're talking about. You build relationships. Seth Godin came on my show, episode 100 of Screw the Naysayers. It seems like a long time ago. It was just a little over a year ago. I know for sure that journey to get Seth started with my first guest, because my first guest was a guy named Don Wettrick. And I knew even then that Seth had huge respect for the work that Don was doing in trying to change and radically change the education system for high school kids and to promote entrepreneurship and coding and building of technology-based businesses. It's not a coincidence that after I'd earned some other, earned the right to make the ask, that when I was able to reach back and say, hey, Don, has been, I know that you've been on Don's show. Don's been on, was my first guest. He did me a big solid. These are the way you build networks because it's crazy the people I'm talking to from Nova Scotia. And I was thinking about it the other day, Sean, I'm not lying. I have only left my home village for business twice in the last two and a half years. The first time last October, I went to the city of Toronto to accept an award, a, a woman of inspiration uh, conference for the work I've done with my podcast and advancing uh, women gender equity. And the second time was in November, I went down to Cambridge because I was invited to speak on a stage at Harvard. And I thought I might want to do that. All of the other people, every other relationship that I've made, I've done from this studio, I'm looking at right now is nothing but forest and trees and blue sky in, in a village of about 300 people. That has changed in sales because we can make human connections without always being there in person. If you really look at successful companies, it always comes back to their ability to, to build their network. The return on relationship I heard the other day, I hadn't heard that phrase before, but ROR, return on relationships. And I thought, that's a pretty interesting way of looking at it because I can trace just about everything good that's happened in my business back to, I know where relationships came from. And Sean introduced me to so-and-so, introduced me to so-and-so and those kind of things. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.